China has a quarter of the world's Alzheimer's patients. With the country's gray population growing rapidly, the number of patients will likely increase fourfold by 2050. Meet the patients, their families and caregivers, and discover the anxiety, struggle and misconceptions behind one of the biggest problems of an aging society in our documentary, Aging in China, Living with Alzheimer's, on CGTN Radio. For podcast listeners, search The Top Story and find the program on all popular podcast apps on September the 21st, the 30th World Alzheimer's Day. Get the unmissable news stories of the day. This is the Beijing Hour. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Thursday, September the 21st, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, China's vice foreign ministers addressed a special session of the UN Security Council on finding an end to the conflict in Ukraine. Azerbaijan and Armenian forces have agreed to a ceasefire to end two days of fighting in a disputed region. China's crew on the Tiangong space stations hosted another live stream with students across the country. In business, the U.S. Fed maintains interest rates at a 22-year high. In sports, we have the latest action at the Hangzhou Asian Games. In culture and entertainment, decorating Beijing for the upcoming National Day holiday. Now checking the day's top stories. Chinese Vice Foreign Minister Ma Jiaoshu says China is ready to work with members of the United Nations Security Council to bring an end to the conflict in Ukraine. Ma addressed a special session of the Ukraine, or, or as Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky made his first in-person appearance at the Security Council during the General Assembly. The UNGA also tried to build momentum for the COP28 climate conference is happening later this year. Nathan King reports from New York. There was a real argument between the Russian ambassador and this month's presidency uh, and essentially Russia tried to delay the proceedings. When Vladimir Zelensky did finally speak, he basically questioned whether Russia should be uh, sitting at the Security Council at all. In fact, he had a suggestion uh, that the veto in the Security Council could be overridden by the General Assembly if the UN changed its rules. Now, Russia wouldn't agree to that. When China spoke, they essentially said, look, let's stop pouring oil on the fire and look for more diplomatic ways to achieve peace. We believe that the sovereignty and the territorial integrity of all countries should be respected. The purposes and the principles of the UN Charter observed. The legitimate security concerns of all countries taken seriously and all efforts conducive to resolving the crisis supported. The other crisis, of course, is climate change. And it was a sort of shaming summit where the big emitters weren't giving speaking slots. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, saying it is a hellish atmosphere right now in the world. And so he was highlighting nations that are going above and beyond their climate uh, commitments ahead of COP28 in about uh, six or seven weeks' time. Uh, so the big emitters like the US, China, India uh, weren't there. And he's basically asking for them to deliver on not just their promises, but bring something new to COP28 and get this financing sorted of 100 billion a year plus other monies to help the global south. 
change to green energy and mitigate and adapt to the climate change. That was Nathan King reporting from the United Nations. And echoing China's call for peace and dialogue is Hungarian Foreign Minister Peter Siarto, who's also in New York to attend the UN General Assembly. He encouraged Ukraine and Russia to speak to each other via the UNGA. This uh, General Assembly should play an important role in bringing the war uh, to its end. Now, in order to bring the war to its end, we should use utilize United Nations for what it was created to. Because the United Nations has not been created to serve as a platform for like-minded countries. You have NATO, EU, CIS and all these kind of integrations uh, which have been designed for uh, like-minded countries, but not United Nations. United Nations uh, have been uh, created to serve as a platform for countries uh, which might even be in a war with each other, which might look at enemies at each other, which might have serious debates with each other. So UN should serve uh, as a platform for them to offer a, a possibility, a chance for dialogue. Uh, the foreign minister also criticized Western powers for hindering Hungary's efforts in brokering peace. Our colleagues, our allies from NATO, from United States, for, sorry, from European Union, uh, they do not really would like to use uh, this uh, General Assembly as a platform for dialogue. They try to, uh, they try to you know, encourage us not to meet uh, representatives of Russia, Belarus, uh, but I, I, I think this is a cool de sac. This is a dead end street. So if you are not able to reach out to those with whom we have conflicts, and we are, if we are not able to discuss these conflicts, then we will never find a peaceful solution. And then, then more people will die and more destruction will take place. Well, Ciarto added that sanctions and weapons deliveries have transferred the impact of the conflict to the world, resulting in crises such as inflation and energy shortages. Leaders of Chile and Honduras have slammed U.S. sanctions against Central and South American countries. Honduran President Xiomara Castro called for the removal of the sanctions. We condemn the blockades against Cuba and Venezuela. Likewise, we demand the removal of Cuba from the list of countries classified as state sponsors of terrorism because it is a manipulated and false measure. Meantime, Chilean President Gabriel Boric condemned the U.S.-backed coup that overthrew then-President Salvador Allende and urged the United States to lift its unilateral sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela. Boric also called it a wrong decision to list Cuba as a terrorist country. Global migration trends remain an important issue at the United Nations. Figures from the UN High Commissioner for Refugees show that more than 100 million people worldwide have been forcibly displaced. Alistair Baverstock finds out if uh, high-level discussions can have a major influence on managing the flow of people. In the thick of an ongoing migration crisis in North America, Gabriela Hernandez is the director of one of Mexico City's longest-standing migrant shelters. Over the past two decades, Gabriela has viewed the turmoil across countries in Latin America and the Caribbean through the arrivals she receives at the shelter. Right now, there is another large wave of Haitians passing through, as well as quite a few Venezuelans. Also, the flow of migrants from Central America never stops. 
All of these migrants have the goal of reaching the U.S. border, where American authorities reported encounters with more than 2.3 million migrants undertaking irregular crossings in 2022. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, reports more than 100 million people are forcibly displaced worldwide, with the highest volume of people fleeing countries like Afghanistan, Myanmar, South Sudan and Syria. Today we have 110 million people that have fled because of conflict, persecution, discrimination, violence, often mixed with other motives, in particular the impact of climate change. It's quite uh, an indictment on the state of our world. Pedro Diaz de la Vega is a former Mexican diplomat to the UN and says it's important for the General Assembly to address these issues. The UN General Assembly can help to solve migration problems by looking at countries' needs for sustainable development. For example, Europe's demand for senior care workers could easily be covered by Latin American refugees who have this training. But countries make it difficult. The United Nations can collaborate by understanding different countries' needs and making the transition process more flexible. As UN diplomats meet in New York, their work can have impacts for millions of the most vulnerable people across the world. That was uh, Alistair Baverstock reporting. Senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi has concluded his visit to Russia. Following a meeting with President Vladimir Putin, Wang said China is willing to enhance strategic mutual trust, deepen cooperation, and further consolidate the foundation of friendship between the two countries. The Russian presidents expressed the country's readiness to work with China to resist unipolar hegemony and block confrontation and safeguard international fairness and justice. Dasha Chernyshova has more from Moscow. Wang Yi is saying that China is ready to continue business cooperation with Russia and the Russian president saying that he hoped that by 2024, by the end of this year, uh, the two countries will reach the uh, very important benchmark of uh, 200 billion US dollars of trade turnover between these two countries. That benchmark was set by the presidents of the two states in 2018 and now the expectation that it will indeed be finally met. We also have heard the Russian president saying that Moscow and Beijing share their approaches when it comes to the international affairs. He said they do stand for the creation of the multipolarity. We've heard before the two sides, uh, the um, Moscow and Beijing reiterating that the, they do share the common approach when it comes to the international politics. But now the Russian president said that uh, it is uh, the support for the international law, not the rules that he said are created by someone out of the blue and changed when it is convenient to the Western states. So certainly we understand understand that this visit is given an impetus for tighter cooperation between the two. That was Adasha Chernyshova uh, on China and Russia trying to consolidate uh, relations. Coming up, Azerbaijan reaches a ceasefire deal with Armenian forces in a disputed region. China has a quarter of the world's Alzheimer's patients. With the country's grey population growing rapidly, the number of patients will likely increase fourfold by 2050. Meet the patients, their families and caregivers, and discover the anxiety, struggle and misconceptions behind one of the biggest problems of an aging society in our documentary, Aging in China, Living with Alzheimer's, on CGTN Radio. For podcast listeners, search The Top Story and find the program on all popular podcast apps on September the 21st, the 30th World Alzheimer's Day.
It's 11 minutes past the hour. Azerbaijan and Armenian forces have agreed to a ceasefire to end two days of fighting in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan says the intensity of fighting in the region has decreased. He says his government did not take part in discussing or negotiating the deal, but has taken note of the decision made by the authorities of Nagorno-Karabakh. If peacekeepers have proposed a peace deal, it means that they completely and without any reservations accepted the responsibility of ensuring the security of Nagoro-Karabakh Armenians and provide the conditions and the rights for them to live on their land and in their homes safely. Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev says his country has restored its sovereignty after the fighting. The events that occurred on Tuesday and Wednesday will have a positive impact on the peace process between Armenia and Azerbaijan. I want to hope that our steps, the results of the military operation, will eliminate the obstacles and create a new reality, long-term peace in the South Caucasus. Azerbaijan launched a military operation in Nagorno-Karabakh on Tuesday, demanding the Armenian forces withdraw from the territory. The two countries have been at loggerheads over the region since 1988. The Indian government issued an advisory cautioning its citizens in Canada against traveling to areas prone to anti-Indian activities. This came in the wake of souring relations between the two countries after the killing of a Sikh leader in Canada who India had named as a terrorist. Uh, the Canadian governments blamed the killing on Indian agents and the countries have each expelled one diplomat. Benji Heyer has more. This days-old row started back on Monday, actually, when Justin Trudeau, Canada's Prime Minister, said his country's intelligence services were pursuing credible allegations that India was involved in the murder of a Canadian Sikh leader back in June. India's denied this. It calls those allegations absurd, although... New Delhi's National Investigation Agency did accuse the deceased Hardeep Singh Nijar of being a terrorist. The context is that Nijar, the victim, was part of a, a pro-Khalistan movement that calls for the creation of an independent Sikh homeland in parts of modern-day India and Pakistan. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's party paints that movement as a threat to India, whilst the dream of an independent uh, Khalistan remains significant in parts of the Sikh diaspora in Canada. One thing's becoming more apparent and more alarming, which is that the fallout goes beyond the two countries directly involved. Canada's part of the G7. It's part of an intelligence-sharing uh, partnership with the United States. That means Washington here could be drawn into the dispute too. That was Benji Heyer on the possible spillover effect of the diplomatic rift between India and Canada. Saudi Arabia Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman says his country is moving steadily closer to normalizing relations with Israel. But the treatment of Palestinians remains a very important issue to be resolved. We need to solve that part and we have a good negotiation to continue. Till now we're going to see where it will go. We hope that it will reach a place that it will uh, ease the life of the Palestinians and uh, get Israel back uh, uh, as a player in the Middle, uh, Middle East. 
Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also voiced optimism that a deal to establish diplomatic ties between Tel Aviv and Riyadh could be within reach. Netanyahu has met U.S. President Joe Biden in New York. The Biden administration has been working to broker a deal to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Riyadh and Washington have emphasized in recent months any U.S. brokered agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia would require positive developments toward a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Slovakian Agricultural Minister Joseph Bires says uh, the move by Ukraine to file a complaint to the World Trade Organization against his country is not legally based. A senior Ukrainian official says the country will file a lawsuit to the WTO against Slovakia, Hungary and Poland over their decisions to extend a ban on Ukrainian agricultural products. The WTO has confirmed it's received a Ukrainian request for talks over the dispute. Abiras has described the complaint as a surprise to him. I said that I did not expect this, especially without explaining the situation to each other. So I was surprised. Indeed, the complaint, if they file it, there's no legal basis for it because it's impossible to have uncontrolled over-import of food into a member state. Many farmers in Eastern Europe have railed against the imports from Ukraine. They say the grain's gotten stuck inside their borders and driven down prices for local growers. The European Commission uh, said last week that it's decided not to extend the embargo on Ukrainian agricultural products to Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, Hungary and Slovakia. But Poland, Hungary and Slovakia have refused to drop the ban. Ukrainian Prime Minister Denis Shmyl says his country is considering imposing trade restrictions on the three countries. A recent United Nations food insecurity report has found a significant increase in the number of people going hungry around the world. Hunger is affecting almost a third of the population in Brazil, despite the country being known as one of the breadbaskets of the world. Paulo Cabral has more. The menu today is beef ravioli with red sauce, all done with much care in the kitchen in Sao Paulo. For the past eight years, they've been preparing these meals and serving them to the homeless on the streets of Sao Paulo, many of them scavenging recyclable materials to earn money. It's great, it's really delicious. There are still good people in this country, people that look out for us and touch our hearts. According to a recent UN report, the number of hungry people around the world increased by 122 million between 2019 and 2022. In Brazil, around 10 million people suffer from chronic malnourishment, while more than 70 million, nearly a third of the country, face some degree of food insecurity. So Brazil is a rich country with a great production of food. The problem in Brazil is that the people, the poorest part of the population, they don't have money. Brazilian authorities say they are resuming policies that were effective during the leftist Workers' Party governments that got Brazil off the UN's world hunger map in 2014, a map to which it returned in 2018. The food insecurity figures worsen in Brazil because many public institutions and public policies have been dismantled by the last government. The reintroduction of measures like the payment of family grants increases in minimum wages, school food programs and family agriculture programs are likely to have a strong positive impact. Social workers working with homeless people say the COVID-19 health emergency 
emergency deepen Brazil's hunger and food insecurity problems, and that the situation has not yet returned to pre-pandemic levels. The organizers of this food distribution say the pandemic changed the populations of people who are living on the streets. In the past, homeless people were mostly men. Now we see many families who lost everything during the pandemic. Father Denison says charity alone won't solve Brazil's hunger and food insecurity. For now, the meals that his institute serves to his community are acts of kindness that help sustain the needy, body and soul. That was Paulo Cabral reporting from Sao Paulo. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, Chinese students participate in another live stream with the crew on the Tiangong Space Station. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. 20 minutes past the hour now. Uh, China's first civilian astronauts taken up his profession as a professor once again, but from inside China's Tiangong Space Station. Gui Haichao joined his fellow Shenzhou 16 crew members, uh, Zhu Yongju and uh, Commander Jinghai Peng, to bring a live stream from in orbit to students across China. Gui lit a flame which formed a spherical shape in a microgravity environment. Because, of course, gravity works here. So we talk about on Earth, hot gases from the flame rise while gravity pulls cooler air to the bottom of the flame. So there is that the reason creates both the shape of the flame and also that the effect we talk about, that's the convection. So that convection of the gravity makes this different. And here in space, actually, the flow of the air actually is to all directions. So no matter which air is flowed to any direction, it's always in these, the spherical shape. Uh, the crew members also conducted experiments with a spinning top, steel balls, and water to demonstrate the laws of physics. At the end of the live stream, Commander Jinghai Peng encouraged students to work hard toward their dreams. The youth strive, the country can survive. You are the future of the country, of the nation. Please cherish your time and also seize your opportunities and also appreciate at the time. And please also dream big and also make that happen. That was the fourth Tiangong class from space. The three Taikonauts reached China's space station in late May. They're scheduled to stay there for roughly five months. Chinese President Xi Jinping recently wrote a response letter hailing the spirit of the Flying Tigers. The Flying Tigers was a group of American volunteer aviators that fought alongside China during World War II. Among the recipients of the letters, the chairman of the Sino-American Aviation Heritage Foundation, who wrote to President Xi together with uh, two Flying Tigers veterans last month. Edith Tianshan uh, visited him in Las Vegas. Monday was one of the most exciting days of Jeffrey Green's life. The chairman of the Sino-American Aviation Heritage Foundation, who received a response to the letter he wrote last month to the Chinese President Xi Jinping. Thank you for your letter. I was heartened by the great enthusiasm of the Sino-American Aviation Heritage Foundation and the veterans of the Flying Tigers in letting more Chinese and Americans know 
about the stories of the Flying Tigers over the years. Green has dedicated much of his life to preserving the memories of Flying Tigers, a group of American volunteer aviators whose partnership with the Chinese Air Force during World War II dealt a major blow to the Japanese forces, changing the course of history. So all I can say is I want to thank President Xi Jinping for remembering our foundation, and more importantly, remembering what the Flying Tigers did 80 years ago in defending the people of China and helping to defeat the Japanese fascists in the Second World War. Their legacy represents a time in which the Chinese and Americans fought side by side to maintain world peace. And to keep that spirit alive, Green's organization has coordinated scores of trips to China and several exchange programs between the two nations. His efforts were recognized by the Chinese president in his letter. Inspired by this, more and more young Americans have joined the Flying Tiger Friendship Schools and Youth Leadership Program and nearly 500 American Flying Tigers, veterans, and several hundred of their family members have visited China. I wish to pay tribute to all of you for all of this. That's our mission, and he's recognizing it. So I'm, again, I'm humbled, what, how do I, what do I say? I'm, I'm extraordinarily humbled. Uh, and my veterans are just, again, they're so honored that he's taken the time to remember them, recall what we're doing, uh, to me, that's just a, it's just a remarkable letter. Next month, Harry Moyer and Melvin McMullen, the last two surviving flying tigers, will be going on their next trip to China, accompanied by families of other flying tigers. We're taking another 21 flying tiger family members, and we're going to, beyond Beijing, we're going to 10 Chinese cities where the photo exhibit, Remembering Heroes, the Flying Tigers, will be displayed these cities. Educating young people about the two nations' common aviation history remains a priority for the foundation, in hopes of inspiring new generations with ideas of international cooperation and world peace. And that was Edith Tian Shen with a report about uh, carrying on the spirit of friendship and peace between the U.S. and China. Well, firefighters in Australia are battling more than 60 wildfires across three states as the eastern part of the country bakes under an unusual spring heat wave. The country's Bureau of Meteorology has officially declared that Australia is in the midst of an El Nino weather pattern that's typically associated with hotter and drier conditions. Greg Navarro has more. From Queensland across New South Wales and into Tasmania, firefighters are busy trying to contain more than 60 fires across Australia's east. In New South Wales, more than 600 firefighters are on the ground and in the air battling flames and the conditions. Obviously we're quite concerned with those winds strengthening this afternoon that embers can get out and those fires could break. Dozens of schools south of Sydney were closed where the fire danger was rated as catastrophic and the start to the most serious bushfire season since the 2019-2020 deadly bushfires has caused anxiety for some people who lived through it. We got attacked three times in the fires before, so we're just watching what's going on all the time. Much of Australia is experiencing a dangerous spring heat wave with record-breaking temperatures in some parts of the country up to 16 degrees Celsius above the September average. So what's quite unusual about this heat at this time is the prolonged nature of it. Australia's Bureau of Meteorology has declared the country is in the midst of two significant weather patterns, El Nino and a positive Indian Ocean diapole. Both these climate drivers have a significant influence on the Australian climate. 
um, in particular favouring warmer and drier conditions, particularly over spring, but also into early summer. Um, those conditions are associated or accompanied by an increase in fire danger and extreme heat risk. Earlier this month, Sydney was shrouded under a thick blanket of smoke for several days from dozens of deliberately lit fires to reduce the bushfire risk. So one of the significant components that we're dealing with right now is a huge amount of undergrowth as well as overgrowth and grasslands, um, which has come up during uh, the rainy season after 1920. The problem is back-to-back -back wet seasons made keeping up with hazard reduction burning extremely difficult, so much so that only about 24% of those targeted areas had been completed by the end of last year. The country's heat wave is expected to ease by the end of the week, but meteorologists say hotter and drier conditions fueling an increased risk of bushfires will remain here for months. That was uh, Greg Navarro reporting. Now, 28 minutes past the hour and Beijing's down to 16 degrees overnight. Tomorrow's sunny and 27 Celsius. Chongqing has a slight rain in 20 this evening. Uh, that rain continues through the day tomorrow with a high of 30. It lasts at 10 tonight. Tomorrow's cloudy and 23. Hong Kong has showers in 27 overnight. It's cloudy tomorrow in 31. Elsewhere, Tokyo's 25 this evening. Thunderstorms in 29 degrees on Friday. Islamabad's at 23 tonight, then thunderstorms in 33. Bangkok's down to 26 degrees, then thunderstorms in 36. In Africa, Nairobi's partly cloudy in 27. Finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 11 this evening. Uh, partly cloudy and 19 on Friday. Auckland's down to 13 overnight, then uh, mostly cloudy in 19. Port Vila, some clouds in 30 degrees Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, China's vice foreign minister has addressed a special session of the UN Security Council on finding an end to the conflict in Ukraine. Azerbaijan and Armenian forces have agreed on a ceasefire to end two days of fighting in a disputed region. And China's crew in the Tiangong space stations hosted another live stream with students across the country. And Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Out. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你. This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you are a rookie, or a sophisticated learner, there is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. 
This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Thursday, still to come. In business, the U.S. Fed maintains interest rates at a 22-year high. In sports, we have the latest action at the Hangzhou Asian Games. In culture and entertainment, decorating Beijing for the upcoming National Day holiday. To contact us, you can email audionewsroom at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. First of all, with the day's headline news, here's Zhu Tianlu. Thank you, Shane. Chinese President Xi Jinping has inspected the city of Jinghua in Zhejiang province. He visited a village and an international trade market in the EU area to learn about the development of local distinctive industries. He also learned about the efforts in promoting rural revitalization and boosting foreign trade and high-quality development. China and more than 80 other countries have released a joint statement to advocate for the inclusion of women with disabilities in society at the UN Human Rights Council. The head of the Chinese mission to the United Nations in Geneva stressed the importance of promoting inclusive societies to help women with disabilities achieve equality and development. Chen Xu called on the international community to raise awareness of social inclusion and implement social support policies for the group. He also expressed China's willingness to work with all like-minded countries to promote this cause. The President of the Democratic Republic of the Congo has told the United Nations General Assembly that he has asked his government to fast-track the withdrawal of the UN peacekeeping mission. The aim is to begin the withdrawal at the end of this year. The mission intended to quell insecurity in the eastern part of the country. But the DRC president says it has failed to cope with the rebellions and armed conflicts. Meanwhile, DRC President Felix Tshisekedi has called on the UN Security Council to include two more permanent seats for Africa. La demande pressante et incessante de mon pays. I wish to sound a stirring call, the call of Africa on the whole, a call to enlarge the United Nations Security Council as a guiding decision-making body of the United Nations to ensure that there are two representatives of the African continent there as permanent representatives in order to ensure fair and equal and representative geographical representation. Currently, three countries of the 15-member Security Council are African or are non-permanent members. China's Shenzhou 16 crew has delivered a science class via live stream from the Tiangong Space Station. Jing Haipeng, Zhu Yangzhu and Gui Haichao conducted experiments with fire and water and demonstrated how gravity works. They also answered real-time questions from students across China. Zhu Yangzhu explained how they deal with adverse reactions from being in space. We may have some sovereigns, for example, we don't have a lot of strength in our muscles. However, the researchers, they have gave us a lot of measures to protect us. For example, we are wearing the space suits and also the precious trousers, and also every day we are doing a lot of uh, exercise. We also have the running machine and the bicycle machine, and especially in Mongtian, we also have the resistance exercise machines. This was the fourth Tiangong class from space. The three Taikonauts reached the China Space Station in late May. They are scheduled to stay there for about five months.
King Charles III and Queen Camilla have taken part in a banquet at the Palace of Versailles with French President Emmanuel Macron, his wife Brigitte, and many other guests. The two leaders both held toast and praised the shared history between the two countries. Macron spoke highly of the friendship between France and the UK. That you have chosen to visit France in these very first months of our reign is a sign of friendship and trust that we measure at its fair value and which touches us deeply, both as a tribute to our past and as a pledge for the future. The king thanked the French for their hospitality during his ongoing visit. Once again, France and the French people have shown us a warm welcome and deep kindness, and we are very grateful. Your generosity reminds us that my family and I were very moved by the tributes paid in France to my mother, whose funeral took place a year ago. The British king is on a three-day state visit to France, which was postponed from March. He and Macron have held a meeting at the Elysee Palace. The agenda reportedly included talks on the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the migration issue. UNESCO has included World War I funerary and memorial locations across the Western Front on its World Heritage list. The World Heritage Committee says the sites listed are of outstanding value to humanity and deserve special protection. The UN Cultural Agency says the incorporation of the World War I memorial grounds onto the list is meant to be a testimony to the legacy of the fallen soldiers. The sites stretch from northern Belgium to eastern France where Allied forces clashed with the German army from 1914 to 1918. The French Defence Ministry has held the decision as recognition of the value the sites hold. France and Belgium have been campaigning to include the sites on the UNESCO registry for more than a decade. All right, uh, thanks very much for the update. That was Jutian Liu. And this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital. Uh, coming up in business, the U.S. Fed maintains interest rates at a 22-year high. Washington is attempting to increase the number of UN Security Council permanent members to dilute influence of China and Russia. How realistic is it? Germany, Japan, and India have been wanting a permanent membership of the Council for decades. Why haven't they succeeded? Can we expect an enlarged UN Security Council with six, seven, or even more permanent members in the foreseeable future? If so, what would it mean for the world order? Find out the answers to these questions and more on this week's Chat Lounge, wherever you get your podcasts and on CGTN Radio. 37 past the hour. Turning to business now and stock markets, all the Chinese mainland finished lower on Thursday. The Shanghai Composite Index was down over seven-tenths of a percent. The Shenzhen Component Index declined almost one percent. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index decreased nearly 1.3 percent. In Japan, the Nikkei lost nearly 1.4 percent. U.S. Federal Reserve has decided to maintain interest rates at a 22-year high, holding its key policy rate at between 5.25% and 5.5%. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says there's a long way to go to curb inflation, but the Fed remains highly attentive of inflation risk. We bring back uh, Benji Heyer for this story. 
The Federal Reserve for the past year and a half has been aggressively trying to tackle inflation, hiking interest rates to a 22-year high. It's a strategy that the Fed says has worked, and now it's slightly pushing on the brakes, deciding not to raise rates again, keeping it within this 525 to 5.5% range. It's a decision that Chair Jerome Powell determined is as of now appropriate as part of the efforts to bring down inflation. In a press conference on Wednesday, he told reporters that he's aware of the hardship that high prices are causing and inflation is amongst the central bank's priorities going forward. Here's the thing, whilst there was no raise anticipated this time round, there remains considerable uncertainty over what steps the bank will take next, especially given that inflation, despite being uh, around the 3% mark, which is far lower than it was before, remains above the 2% target. And the key question that's asked of Jerome Powell is essentially what is going to happen next. He says that he's trying to keep his options open. He has hinted at possible further rises by the end of 2023 before any potential cuts in 2024, and that these rates may remain higher for longer. And the challenge, I think, is that this monetary battle won't necessarily be won overnight. As I mentioned, inflation currently hovering above 3%. It's not likely, Mr. Powell says, to get to that 2% target until the year 2026. That was Benji Heyer reporting. And for more on the Fed's decision to keep interest rates unchanged, uh, Jung Jun Fung spoke with Professor John Gong at the University of International Business and Economics. Thanks for joining us, Professor. The Fed decided not to raise rates this time. Why hasn't the U.S. inflation fallen back to the 2% target set by the Fed? Well, I think uh, the current level of inflation, 1-3%, is already a, a great uh, achievement. I think you know inflation is typically very stubborn and it's very difficult to contain. Um, and we also have to keep in mind that the oil price is gradually cooling back um, at a pretty high level right now. Um, so I think, um, you know, 3% is something, you know, quite to be celebrated in my view. Uh, certainly, you know, the 2% goal is, um, um, you know, is something that they desire, but but I think it's it doesn't have to be uh, uh, fought just by raising rates. Uh, you know, the raising rates does have a toll um, on the economy. Uh, I think the current strategy seems to be that maintaining the same uh, high level. Um, so, so from now on, I think it's not so much of a matter of whether the Fed will raise rate or not, but when it's going to decrease rate. Uh, it looks like it's going to stay there for some time. Talking about decreasing rate, market traders have already pushed their expectation rate cuts to 2024 September. Do you agree with such predictions? And what does this mean for global markets? I, I don't know how they come up with this month number. You know, November, uh, the, the September next year. You know, that's a that's a far, far away. Uh, you know, I, I won't bank on this, but I think at least uh, you know the rate is going to remain the same for quite some time. Um, I think the the issue is whether um, the, in, you know the price level can really come down. I, I mentioned oil price. You know, it's it's, it's coming back, and I, I think um, oil price is not going to come down anytime soon. Uh, it's probably going to remain at this current level uh, for some time 
given, in my view, you know, the close uh, cooperation between the uh, oil-producing Gulf countries and, 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 and Russia, in my view. Um, and the second thing I think is probably ruining the background is the car price. And if you look at American consumers' spending expenditure, other than the mortgage, the next biggest item is actually expenditure on cars. Now the problem is that, you know, there's this strike going on, and uh, clearly what's going to happen is that car price is going to shoot up. Um, so that's going to, you know, bump up inflation again. So I think, um, you know, whether uh, the, the, the Fed's going to maintain the, you know, the, the inflation level and price level um, as has been done, you know, successful so far, still remains a very big question. Um, so we're going to have to see whether, how long, you know, this strike is going to long and whether the car prices will be reflected by the, by the strike. That was Professor John Gong at the University of International Business and Economics offering his insights on the U.S. Federal Reserve's decision to not raise interest rates. The Six China Arab States Expo is underway in Inchuan. Uh, the four-day event in northwest China has attracted participants from more than 50 countries such as Saudi Arabia and Mauritania. This year's expo features trade fairs and forums on trade and investment, as well as modern agriculture and cultural tourism. The exhibition area is nearly 40,000 square meters, and more than 1,000 domestic and foreign enterprises are participating in the exhibition. Uh, China is now the Arab state's largest trading partner. China-Arab trade volume almost doubled from the 2012 level to surpass 431 billion U.S. dollars last year. In the first half of this year, trade between China and the Arab states reached nearly 200 billion. Participants have inked more than 580 investment projects worth over 340 billion yuan, or roughly 47 billion U.S. dollars, at the World Manufacturing Convention in Anhui Province. Projects in the manufacturing sector accounted for around 90% of the total, covering an area of 80,000 square meters. The five-day event in the city of Hefei will highlight smart manufacturing, uh, featuring exhibitions, summits, and forums. Held since 2018, the World Manufacturing Conventions attracted over 14,800 participants to date, injecting new momentum into global manufacturing development. The Chinese Ministry of Transport says the country is accelerating the construction of a modern, high-quality national transport network. According to the ministry, China has made historic progress in transportation development with an improved transport network and strengthened transport service capacity. Vice Minister Li Yang illustrated some achievements made in promoting green mobility and deepening international cooperation. By the end of last year, China's electrification rate of railways reached 74 percent. There are more than 540,000 new energy buses in urban areas, over 300,000 new energy taxis, and more than 800,000 other new energy vehicles engaged in urban logistics. Our international road transport network has covered 21 neighboring countries. We have water routes extending to more than 100 countries and regions. Well, China's water transport route accessibility rate ranks first in the world. Civil aviation maintains uh, regular flights with 64 countries, and postal express services cover more than 220 countries and regions. 
China-Europe freight trains have been acting as a new trade platform for countries along the Belt and Road Initiative, injecting uh, more economic vitality. Recently, China Railway Express launched its website, providing services and information about express trains for clients at home and abroad. With a few clicks, clients can finish the whole process online. Well, now residents in Europe can place orders on cross-border e-commerce platforms and they'll receive made-in-China products sent by the China-Europe freight trains as early as the next day. Vanessa is from Spain. The delivery via China-Europe freight train has become more and more efficient. I can also track the package. By the end of August, over 77,000 trains had operated, uh, with over 7.3 million containers transported. Uh, The route connects 122 cities across China, with more than 210 cities in 25 European countries. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, we have the uh, latest action from the Hangzhou Asian Games. The Hangzhou Asian Games will be a unique experience for all involved. Join us on this week's episode of Sideline Story, where we talk about what hosting the Games means to China. We'll also take a look at non-Olympic sports, new technology and other elements of the Games to look forward to. Be sure to tune into Sideline Story, your destination for sports news, analysis and discussions. 47 past the hour. Turning to sports now and we begin with the Hangzhou Asian Games. Greet Asia in Hangzhou. Embrace the excitement of the Games. With the official approach of the event, Mike Fox has arrived in the city to get a glimpse of the action. People are starting to arrive at the Athletes' Village. It's yet to get into full swing, but those who have come early to Hangzhou are starting to get a glimpse at what their temporary home has to offer. And although it might be temporary, surroundings need to be as comfortable as possible if these athletes and team staff are to perform at their best. How have you found it um, so far? How have the facilities been? How has the city been? Um, I think this uh, Athletes Village is very gorgeous, very big, and I like it very much because uh, I find that there is some VR and AI technique, and I find it's amazing. Uh, it's very li- nice. It's very. It's quite. Uh, impressive. I mean, we, ha- we have been few uh, mega sport events before, and uh, it's nothing like this. Uh, the infrastructure is just amazing, and um, I'm, uh, the service is, is very good, and uh, everyone is so polite. Yeah, I was very, very, very impressed. Yeah. Very good, looking good, and so beautiful. To go with the high-tech facilities, which include 3D and VR experiences, table tennis and even piano-playing robots, there is also the Pin Trading Centre, which provides a chance to take home some memories. The area will accommodate more than 12,000 athletes from 45 countries and regions, which will make up the largest ever Asian Games. Although now, not exactly at full capacity, it will soon be alive with the best sportsmen and women the continent has to offer. That was Mike Fox reporting in Hangzhou. 
Well, China eased past Kyrgyzstan 3-0 in the men's volleyball preliminary round of the Hangzhou Asian Games. Team China faced a challenge as the score was tied at 11 in the first set, but they managed a 25-19 win. China sealed a 25-18 victory in the second set, then secured another 25-18 win with aggressive attacks in the third set. Also on Wednesday, Iran thrashed Nepal 3-0, Qatar beat Thailand 3-1, and Japan sailed past Indonesia 3-0. In today's Meet Asia in Hangzhou section, we take a look at some new technologies that have been adopted at the Hangzhou Asian Games. Chijer has more. Many of the venues have a central control system that connects the facilities and terminals. In Huanglong Sports Center, staff can monitor people and vehicle traffic through the system. The first demonstration of a 5G advanced network has been installed along the route connecting the Hangzhou Olympic Sports Center and the Asian Games Village. They created a 3D model of the game's main venue, known as the Big Lotus, using AR and VR technologies. The audience can use the smart 5G game viewing application to achieve immersive viewing of events in the stadium, and can switch between the athlete's perspective and the coach's seat's perspective to see any location on the field. Visitors can also get access to a one-stop digital game watching platform to enjoy services including tickets, food, and accommodation. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Xiju. Women's volleyball qualifiers for the Paris Summer Olympics are taking place in Ningbo. Host China suffered its first loss in four matches in Pool A after losing to Canada in five sets. Canada led in attack points 76-66, while China held the advantage in blocking in aces. Canada is currently fifth in Pool A, with China, the Netherlands, and the Dominican Republican, or rather the Dominican Republic, at 3-1, and Serbia is 4-0. In Pool C, Italy stayed on top with a perfect record of four victories. In football, Bayern Munich started its UEFA Champions League campaign with a 4-3 victory over Manchester United. Uh, Bayern opened the scoring in the 28th minute and doubled the advantage only four minutes later. The visitors recovered and scored four minutes into the second half. Uh, Bayern restored the two-goal advantage and, uh, or after the referee awarded the hosts uh, a penalty following a video handball review in the 53rd minute. Uh, Bayern then made it 4-1, but the hosts responded in injury time and made it 4-2. United rallied once again, and of course the game settled at 4-3. Inter-Miami suffered a double injury scare on Wednesday with Lionel Messi and Jordi Alba leaving the pitch in the first half of a 4-0 or a 4-0 home victory over Toronto. A manager, Gerardo Martino, admitted that Messi and Alba are now in doubt for Inter-Miami's visit to Orlando City on Sunday and next Wednesday's U.S. Open Cup final against the Houston Dynamo. He stressed that the pair would not be risked if they're not fully fit. Paraguay's national team has named Daniel Granero as the head coach. The 54-year-old replaces uh, fellow Argentine Guillermo Chilado, uh, who was sacked last week after the team's poor start to South America's 2026 FIFA World Cup qualifiers. Paraguay is currently sixth in the 10-team South American qualifying standings, uh, having opened their campaign with a goalless home draw against Peru and a 1-0 defeat at Venezuela. The team's next qualifiers will be an away clash with Argentina. Tina on October the 12th. And uh, that was sports coming up in culture and entertainment, decorating Beijing for the upcoming National Day holiday. The Beijing Hour. 
Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi everyone, I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. Fifty-three past the hour now. Turning to culture and entertainment, Beijing's Tiananmen Square and Chang'an Avenue will be bedecked with floral decorations for the upcoming National Day holiday. The main floral arrangement in the center of Tiananmen Square will be 18 meters high and 45 meters in diameter, with a peony flower pattern symbolizing prosperity. Ten themed flower beds will be installed along Chang'an Avenue. Celebrated on October the first, the National Day this year. Marks the 74th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. Douglas Smith is a visual effects artist whose highlight reel includes Oscar-winning titles like Independence Day, and perhaps the hottest Chinese release this summer, Creation of the Gods: Kingdom of Storms.、Uh, Jiao Yang spoke with Smith about the character design in that Chinese movie. Yeah, I remember seeing、um, some some of the filming、um, clips, and there was one of legends. They were talking about how to give him a sense of weight as he's flying. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that is an experimental process, and we started that really early too.、Um, the final judge of that is、uh, the director、mm-hmm. on doing that, and we tried uh, different uh, tests. To、uh, see if is this too light, is this too heavy?、Uh, what are the parameters?、Uh, one of the things about Legenza that is completely different than other creatures that fly,、um, and、uh, a lot of people who see the movie won't realize this, but the wings are designed from、uh, fish fins, and、uh, the structure of the、uh, of the arms in the membranes are actually very flexible. Uh, it's only the leading edge that is stiff. So we used、um, goldfish and stuff like that to study their、uh, fin motion、uh, for that. So the behavior is something that、uh, Wershon was、uh, specific that what he didn't want. He didn't want a bat and he didn't want a bird.、Uh, and so, so and and a lot of our tests would、uh, would go into that area, a bird-like or bat-like.、Um, Yeah, we weren't doing Batman,、yeah. so it had to look a、uh, you know significantly different. I remember you said in an interview before that、uh, water can actually be one of the toughest elements to recreate. Yeah.、Um, what did you think of the results of that、uh, scene where Tifa、uh, mm. lands in the Yellow River? Yeah, I, I was、uh, concerned about that whole process.、Yeah. Uh, that is has an unknown quality to it when you start shooting. You don't know exactly what's going to happen because you're dealing with、uh, an actor. In water, you don't know exactly what's going to happen,、mm-hmm. and you need、um, you need to have that turbulence around them, and you don't know how that's going to integrate with、uh, the wider scene.、Um, there was a lot of photography done in different custom-built water uh, tanks uh, in uh, Qingdao.、Uh, there, you know, Apoor,、uh, Jifa, and others、mm-hmm. spent a lot of time in、uh, the water at, just as、uh, winter was starting in、uh, Qingdao. So. Yeah, it, it's、uh, there's there's a lot of pieces that go into the film that you end up with.、Uh, you know, who has designed a water tank that is with turbulent water? What color is the water going to be in this river? And、uh, how do you integrate it with the this overall view of、uh, what the bigger river is going to be? You have to start with、um, some sort of final images at the end and、uh, sort of work your way back into、um, what the details are. That was visual effects artist Douglas Smith. 
Polish producer Marek Zajax presented documentary TV series Auschwitz in 33 Objects at the first Golden Panda Awards in Chengdu. The producer says the festival offers his works a chance to emotionally connect with Chinese audiences. I think the quality of this competition is very, very high. And it's a good sign for future because it's the first edition. And this first edition is always crucial. When I see all this fantastic film from so many countries, so various films, but many of them are dealing with uh, human dignity, with diversity, with equality. It shows that movie makers can also build a better world. Golden Panda Awards is co-organized by the China Federation of Literary and Arts Circles and the People's Government of Sichuan Province. It'll take place every two years in Sichuan. A cyber fraud drama No More Bets has surpassed Zhang Yimou's suspense comedy Full River Red to become the most watched film of the year in Chinese cinemas. A viewership has reached 92 million in China. No More Bets continues its theatrical run, generating total revenue of around 531 million U.S. dollars to date and now ranks third on China's 2023 box office chart. That was culture and entertainment. We're at 58 past the hour. Beijing's at 16 degrees overnight. Sunny and 27 tomorrow. Chongqing has a slight rainfall in 20 this evening. The rain continues tomorrow. The high is 30. It lasts down to 10 degrees, then cloudy in 23. Hong Kong has showers in 27, then cloudy in 31. Elsewhere, Tokyo 25 overnight. It'll see thunderstorms in 29 degrees on Friday. Islamabad's 23 this evening, then thunderstorms and 33. That's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, China's vice foreign ministers addressed a special session of the UN Security Council on finding an end of the conflict in Ukraine. In Azerbaijan and Armenian forces have signed an or agreed on a ceasefire to end two days of fighting in a disputed region. On behalf of the staff, Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Takeaway Chinese, where you can take some Chinese away and experience progress day by day. Takeaway Chinese, we will promise you a difference. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable, coming to you live from Beijing. From Beijing. Roundtable. 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 Connecting China and the world. We bring you fun and timely discussions about what's affecting our lives everywhere, every day. Tune in to Roundtable, where the East meets the West, and understanding is the goal. From North to South, East to West, people in China are chasing their dreams and leaving their mark. Want to know how they beat the odds and made a difference? Footprints brings you the true life stories of their journeys. 